the National Heart Forum, a public health NGO, and we're focused on primary prevention of all non-communicable diseases. And so that's where things like fat taxes come into our remit. Um, so we do things around food and nutrition, um, physical activity, um, alcohol, tobacco, all that kind of thing. So this sort of falls into a wide range of the bigger areas that we work on. All right. So I'm going to be talking about fat taxes. As a disclaimer, I am not a tax expert. I've only been looking at taxes in any sort of seriousness for about six months. Um, so it's definitely a learning process, but hopefully we'll all move along together. So <clears throat> the next half hour or so, um, I will be talking about sort of the historical rationale for taxing food and a brief background on how we've already been taxing bad things within society. Um, I'm then going to talk about sort of the current context within the UK, mainly around current purchasing um, trends <coughs> based on some new data from DEFRA. I'm then going to be looking at the sort of nitty-gritty about how food taxes work, who already has them, how they work, um, with a couple of examples. And then I'm going to talk about the recommendations that my organization has come up with in relation to food taxes. Um, and then at the end, I'm going to finish up with um, looking at sort of the broader discussion and how, from public health, it's really easy to say, well, this, this could be a really good tool, but thinking about what everybody else is thinking as well. So, as you already saw, <coughs> good old Benjamin Franklin, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And hopefully, delaying death with higher taxes. <laughs> <laughs> And then this, which is a little more pertinent. Food and drink, unlike tobacco, are essential. At present, if people choose healthy food and drink options, they will generally have to spend more money because healthy options tend to be more expensive. These people will, as a rule, live longer and healthier lives. On average, people will tend to choose the less expensive foods provided they are convenient, available, and satisfying. And I think convenient, available, and satisfying are things we need to kind of keep in mind throughout this discussion. So, we have a long history of, well, relatively long history of taxing bad things. Um, Arthur the Jew, who's an economist, um, came up with this idea that we really should be taxing um, things that have a social cost to society. So, in general, Western societies, and more and more lots of countries around the world, have been imposing taxes on goods and services whose prices do not reflect the true social cost of their consumption. Now, we can argue that there is then a discussion about what are real and perceived social costs, but we can do that for another day. Um, so things like cigarettes and other tobacco products, alcohol, gambling, various environmental conditions, and fuel are all things that we already tax. <clears throat> and then we also have to think about sort of the social determinants of ill health. And most of you, well, I'm assuming all of you in this room understand sort of the broader connections between the market and food prices and all of this sort of political logic and political economic structures related to food. Um, and according to ASDA, just the other day, it's cheaper to buy a can of Coke than a bunch of broccoli by about 14p. So there you go. OK, so setting the scene within the UK. As I said, this is data from DEFRA that came out um, earlier this fall, looking at purchasing. Um, and just as a quick explanation, the x-axis here is looking at the percent that people rated the various categories on why they would purchase food. So, as you can see, price is the number one by far, number one reason why people chose to buy products. Those healthy options are all the way down there. And let's see, the specific 
percent of shoppers named that price was the most important factor, with 90% of people listing it within their top five influences. Whereas healthy options, only 8% of shoppers named it as their most important influence, and only 47% listed it within their top five. Did you skip it? Yes. Okay, eco-friendly is way down. Way yeah. Way down. Yeah. Okay. Way down. It, it almost no one ranked it in their top five. Okay. Uh, in behaviors, is it a difference? Of, uh, so one fact is promotion comes very low mm. in terms of first rated, but half the food in the country is bought when it's on promotion. Right, exactly. And as you can see, a, a very large proportion of people put that within their top five reasoning. Um, and, and right, actually, pr promotion is you could have a whole other talk on promotion and all the issues around that. So, so if we look at the eat well plate categories, which some of you may or may not know, the eat well plate is sort of a ideal plate of a balanced diet. Um, so if we're looking at low income households, um, this is the percentage of food budgets spent on the eat well categories. And very noticeably, the Quantity you should be should be buying of food and drinks that are high in fat that are high in fat and sugar isn't very much of your of your eat well plate, but in reality it's a really high percentage of what people are actually spending their money on. Um, let's see. Oh, and just just for um, your information, the, the prices here are per person per week. So that that statistic is at three seventy five. Per person per week is being spent on food and drinks that are high in fat and sugar. Can I just ask you, is this based on, uh, these expectations are based on what the European Union produces? I mean, um, no, so this is all UK, yeah. UK based, so it would be, um, yeah, UK producers and then UK consumers. Right, so now, looking at, in, between 2007 and 2010, looking at the percentage change of food purchases, um, again in low, in low income groups, we can see that things don't really line up the way we ideally like to see them. So alcoholic drink purchasing has gone way up. Soft drinks has gone down a little bit, but there is evidence to show that that's because other things have gone down in price. So things like promotion, which are promoting alcoholic drinks, those have increased, and alcoholic, <coughs> alcoholic drinks haven't gone up in price as much as other food categories have. And as you can see, vegetable and fruit purchasing um, has dropped drastically. Yes, it's flour, it's raw flour, yes. flour. it's not raw bread. Flour, I believe. Yeah, not bread products. Oh. Well, I, I should check on that, but that's why I find that kind of odd as well. Because people are how baking. How often you buy? Yeah. yeah, and it made that people are baking more because buying the processed bread is more expensive. Okay. And non-carcass meat is processed meat. Yeah. Hot dogs and yeah, meat. exactly. Most ham on the shelves these days. Okay. Right, so that kind of sets the scene. Now, thinking about the UK context, how do taxes actually work? So this is a general model of how you would expect a health-related food tax to work. So you implement the tax, that affects the price of whatever you've taxed. And then that theoretically both, both affects food consumption and therefore nutrient intake and all the other things that come along with that. But then it also hopefully will impact food expenditure. And then that can be split into either money that's going to the retailers 
or money that's going to governments. And ideally, you want the money to be going back to the government. Um, we don't really want money to be going back to the retailers and manufacturers because they're getting enough money as it is. Um, and hopefully, long term, these taxes would have an impact on food consumption and therefore reduce entities. Obviously, that's an idealized idea of how this would work, but you know, you can dream. Right, so when thinking about taxes, how do you judge them as being effective? So there's several ways that you can do this and several things that you should look at. So you can look at the purpose of the tax. Is it altering consumption? Is it revenue raising? Or is it both? And from our perspective, ideally you want it to be both revenue raising and changing consumption patterns. Um, and revenue raising, ideally, which we'll talk about a little bit more later, that revenue should then go back into other health promotion and or subsidizing healthy foods. And that's where it gets a little bit complicated, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Then you also look at which goods are subject to tax. So you can have taxes on categories of food, like sugar-sweetened beverages, soda taxes, or you can have taxes on nutrients, like fat taxes, which is what they had in Denmark. So there are two ways of looking at that. In general, nutrient taxes are far more complicated to implement and administer than category taxes. Then you look at which, uh, sorry, how effective um, the tax is at changing the price, how the tax is passed on to the retail price, and how people's consumption responds to the price changes. Um, and that's sort of the big kicker. Are people actually going to change their purchasing and their consumption habits if the tax is implemented? So, how do you then assess the effectiveness of a food tax um, from direct evidence? And this is where it gets kind of interesting. Because you can see there are basically three general ways to assess the effectiveness. You have natural experiments, you have modeling, and you have experiments in controlled environments. So theoretically, experiments in controlled environments are the most beneficial. But doing an experiment on food taxes in a controlled environment is really, really hard. Modeling studies are quite interesting, and modeling is a really big part of public health these days, and a lot of people are modeling a lot of things. And we'll actually look at some economic um, modeling a little later on, but again, the validity of that is sometimes uncertain because it's it's just an assumption. You know, you're just making a prediction. So ideally, natural experiments are sort of what we really like to see. Um, but as we'll see in just a moment, we don't have any natural experiments that have been going long enough to actually provide any real data. Um, so that's something to think about. All right, so. This is the slide that I had ready for this talk about 10 days ago. <laughs> All right, so examples of health-related food taxes. And how many of you were at the talk last week? Okay, okay. So as some of you may know, there's been a lot happening in food taxes in the last week. So first of all, Denmark has decided to abolish their fat tax with, after just a year. Um, so the industry will tell you that this is because it was too expensive, there were too many administrative costs, people were going over the border to Germany to buy their butter and milk and all that good stuff. Sources that we have are saying that actually it was creating the revenue that the British government was hoping for, there was a little bit of evidence that people were changing their purchasing habits, and actually not that many people were crossing the border. So well, the way we understand it is that the food lobby and party politics played out and that it just didn't make it into the budget for 2013. So, you then have places like the US and Fiji, 
who have who have soda taxes. Um, I'm using soda taxes very broadly. Um, have soda taxes. The interesting thing about the U.S. and why it's not a very good natural experiment is because all of those taxes are in states or cities, and they often aren't around very long because they change when state governments change. So when you have a liberal government, they may implement a soda tax. Conservative Republican government comes in, one of the first things they abolish. So it's really hard to study those. Fiji actually is one of the more stable soft drink taxes, but just in the last um, year or so, they've decided to change their tax, their food taxes, um, scrapping what they have and implementing a more serious, stricter soda tax. But that hasn't come into play yet, so we don't know what's going to happen there. And then, also last week, Ireland announced in their 2013 budget that they, the government, is proposing to implement a sugar sweetened beverage tax. Um, which public health is very excited about because, eh, we lost Denmark, but hey, we have Ireland. Um, obviously, the food industry isn't very excited about this. So, that's the new updated what's happening in food taxes. <clears throat> so, I'm going to be looking at giving you some examples from France and Hungary. Um, this is partially because in the preparation of the report that we did, we had presentations and case studies provided to us by folks in France and Hungary, so they're what we have sort of first-hand knowledge about. We did, we did have a case study on Denmark, but I decided not to tell you about that since you heard about it last week, and it got rid of it. So, France. France has introduced, um, they introduced in January 2012 a new soft drink tax. It applies to both sugar-sweetened and diet soft drinks, um, and the intended purpose of the tax was to raise revenues with half being allocated to national health insurance purposes and the other half going to general funds. So, so this is some of that modeling data I was going to tell you about. And hopefully it's not too complicated to look at. Basically, they're using data from two, consumption data, old consumption data from 2003 to 2005, and they're modeling projected changes in price and consumption. Um, based on this implementation of the new tax. Um, initial evaluation is currently going on in relation to the first six months of the tax. So hopefully, within maybe another six months or so, we'll have some data on what's actually happening, as opposed to using this, um, this modeling data. But as you can see, some with the data, there would be some impact on um, changing consumption would go down, theoretically in drinks with added sugars, um, and, and then also in consumption of all soft drinks. So that's just kind of an example of how the modeling can work, but you have to remember to think about some of those limitations. And then Hungary. So Hungary implemented a public health product tax, which was introduced in September of last year. And the, it's an indirect tax on pre-packed products in categories well, where healthy alternatives are available. So, Hungary is actually taxing a lot of stuff. So as you can see, they're taxing soft drinks, energy drinks, confectionery products, so candy, salty snacks, condiments, flavored beer and alcohol pops. Sidebar, alcohol pops, new term for me, but very interesting. Anyways, and then fruit jams. They're taxing um, alcohol pops. Yes. More than beyond the alcohol. Yeah, so flavored beers and alcohol pops have an additional tax on top of their regular alcohol taxes. 
it's, a, um, it's like those blue things in bottles that you get. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of introductory taster for, yeah. uh, for alcohol for teenagers. So they like Are the you sweets. Yeah. There, it's like Mike's Heartland. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that's what Hungary's doing, which is, sounds very ambitious. Um, some interesting things about Hungary, though. They have a history of rather unorthodox public health policies. So looking within that context, it's not really surprising that they um, tried to go for a lot. Um, the biggest um, sort of backlash they've had has been from, not surprising, the multinational um, food producers as opposed to the in-country food producers, um, because it makes it more complicated for them administratively, which seems to be the argument all around. Um, there is no data yet on the consumption or purchasing impact of the tax. Um, so hopefully within the next year, there'll be some data on that. Um, but as I said, it's only been around for about a year. And there is data, however, on the initial revenue generation, which was one aspect of this tax as well. Um, and it's been lower than expected. And this is because of expected tax evasion by both government officials and um, producers. So that's an area that they need to work around. Yes. Sorry, we're just butting in with questions. That's okay. I mean, way, way that corporations deal with taxation generally, they can they can post their tax in a country, um, um, you know, in a low tax regime. So, mm -hmm. for example, they could post their tax in Luxembourg, which is a low European tax. Is this is this likely to happen with free taxation? It probably is. Although, as I'll talk about a little, very briefly, a little later on, um, there are some EU regulations around taxes. So, depending on how a country categorizes the tax. Um, some of those would be um, uh, exclusive. They, they would be categorized as such so that they'd be exclusive to that country and um, businesses wouldn't be able to get out of okay. working those in the So if they, okay. but the, but if they manipulated the, the products that went into, the commodities that went into a food uh, product mm -hmm. that could be potentially taxed. Mm -hmm. Part of the taxation would happen in the country of consumption. Part of the taxation mm -hmm. would happen in the in yeah. in, in the, the the country of, of, of production wherever it was registered. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, it's the Hungarian guy in the talk was saying that the tax in Hungary was applied to um, the producers if mm -hmm. they were in country or to the first importer if they were coming mm -hmm. into the country. Okay. So not necessarily the producer. Yeah. Okay. So it's so it's on the, it's not on the direct producer, but on the second group. Secondary, yeah. Okay. The first point of contact in the yeah. country. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Right. So now that we have an idea, sort of about basically how food taxes work, or how we think they should work, and some countries that are already doing it, um, my organization um, decided that it was about time that we come up with some recommendations of our own on sort of the ideal food tax situation. So this is our series of recommendations. So one, we think as a proportionate response to the current crisis, really, or diet-related ill health, that the application of additional taxes on foods known to be unhealthy should be part of a packaged public health policy. So obviously, food taxes cannot work alone. They cannot work in a vacuum. They, they won't work in a vacuum. So they need to be one element of a much broader public health package around dealing with diet-related ill health. 
And as you saw in my summary, I mentioned that I wasn't going to show a foresight map because presumably this group gets to see the foresight map quite a bit. We all see it quite a bit. And we all know that it's a very complicated picture of all of the various interacting factors and um, both modifiable and not modifiable that affect obesity. So evidence suggests that taxes apply to specific product categories, such as sugar, sweet, and soft drinks, are straightforward to apply and unlikely to have significant unintended effects. Unintended effects I'll talk about in just a moment. But as I was saying earlier, there is this difference between category taxes and nutrient taxes. And as a whole, category taxes seem to be much easier to implement. They're easier for the public to understand. Um, and you can put them on things just like sugar sweetened soft drinks, as opposed to larger categories like fat, which is complicated and how you find it, how much are you going to tax and all that. So number three, duties on unhealthy foods are not likely to have a significant effect on changing consumption and supply patterns in isolation. So that goes along with the first point. It should be a comprehensive part of the policy measures, and it should just be one element. It needs to come go with um, public health education, other changes to the food environment. Fourth, concerns about regressivity must be taken into account but should not by themselves be used as barriers for implementing food taxes. So one of these unintended effects is this idea of regressivity and how taxing food will have a negative impact on poor consumers. Um, that in and of itself is, yes, a big concern, and I'll mention that in a little bit, but on its own should not be used as a driver against food taxes. Number five. Clear communication of the purpose of the tax and its potential benefits needs to be including how revenues may be used to support health services or health programs or to subsidize healthy foods, and is crucially important as it will determine public acceptance of the tax. So at the end of the talk, I'm going to show you some, some opinions from the public on food taxes um, where this element comes into play. Number six, the term health-related food duty is what we would suggest as sort of a better term. A, you get rid of... Um, tax, which people don't like, people don't like taxes. Um, duty has a slightly different meaning to it. It's an addition to sort of VAT and things like that. Um, and if you include health-related, um, our thinking is that it will go over better. But again, that's something that we have to see with time. And finally, any proposed statutory instrument should be introduced with a sunset clause so that it is subject to regulatory review after a period of time. So this would mean that there would need to be um, continuing, continuous monitoring and evaluation of both consumption, purchasing, um, but how the tax is actually working. Is it being administrated properly? Is it, is it doing what it's supposed to do in the ways that it's supposed to do it? And if it's not, fine, we scrap it. But you have to give it enough time. A year, for instance, in Denmark, isn't really enough time to learn anything from it. Although the food industry would like to tell you that because nothing happened in a year, it's fine. Just get rid of it. <clears throat> so, thinking in the broader picture. So we have this nice idea about food taxes, but what are we going to do with every all those other elements out there? So this idea of regressivity, we, we have to take it into account. And the concern regarding regressivity is that poor households spend a greater proportion of their income on food and a food, food tax could disproportionately tax poor families. That is a very legitimate concern. Um, and as we all know, food prices are going up. 
and we, we need to be aware of how something like this would affect poor consumers. On the flip side, however, the poor sectors of society have the highest disease burdens, especially when it comes to NCDs, um, and suffer the highest incidences of diet-related um, diseases early in life. So theoretically, the health gains are likely to be greater in those populations than in higher economic populations. And that over time, given time to work, it would balance out and actually those populations would have the greatest benefit from um, a fiscal measure such as food taxes. But that, the argument regarding um, the disproportionate taxation of poor families is one of the biggest arguments against food taxes. It's used by the food industry quite a bit. Um, and it's something that public health needs to do a really good job of trying to explain um, that no, we don't want it. We don't want to make it harder for poor families. In the long run, we're trying to make it better for them. And if we help them shift their consumption and purchasing habits, that ideally actually it'll work out better for everybody. And then they're also concerned around sort of the, con the government control of what we eat. Um, the personal choice versus structural barrier debate and how, you know, a lot of people, if you just ask them on the street, say, what do you think of food taxes? They're going to go, oof, I don't want a food tax. I don't want the government telling me what is good for me to eat and not to eat. Um, and again, that's a broader discussion to have. Um, but as we all know, poor nutrition is a significant risk factor for NCDs. Um, health foods are not affordable or accessible. And... Oh, and, um, well, NCDs long-term will have a very high impact on both the economic and population health of countries like Earth Society, like the UK, um, and therefore it's actually within the public good um, to try and shift consumption um, and essentially help people eat better. Obviously, that is, again, a debate that we could have um, with you or lots of people. And then finally, this idea, this question about legality at the EU level. Um, so one of the things that's a complicating factor is all these multinational food companies. And because we're part of the EU, um, that makes things, there's that extra layer of bureaucracy um, and regulation involved. So as of right now, food taxes fall in the category of excise duties. And within EU law, excise duties fall into this um, state of non-harmonized internal taxes. I can't tell you what that is off the top of my head, but if you really want to know, I can get more information. So basically, yes, right now, the UK is able to implement certain types of food taxes um, within EU law. So, to finish things up, what is actually the global discussion? What, what are people saying about food taxes? So first you have public health, and you've just heard what my organization is saying about food taxes. And then you have, for instance, the European Public Health Association, which says that food taxation offers governments a two-pronged error to deal with two of the most pertinent issues they face, not only offering important action to tackle the obesity epidemic, the revenues produced can also boost austerity-stricken budgets. So especially in Europe and other places in the world, People are having a really, governments are having a very hard time um, raising money, and this is seen as, as a way that they could actually raise some revenues and hopefully put that to other health, other health measures. And then you have the UN Repertoire on the right to food. 
So economic accessibility means that food must be affordable. Individuals should be able to afford food for an adequate diet without compromising on any other basic needs, such as school fees, medicines, or rent. Food should be accessible to all, including to the physical, physically vulnerable, such as children, the sick, persons with disabilities, or the elderly, or for whom it may be difficult to go out and get food. And for reference, the U.S. defines adequate, or the U.N. Excuse me, defines adequate as food must satisfy dietary needs, taking into account the individual's age, living conditions, health, occupation, sex, etc. And adequate food should also be culturally acceptable. And then you have what the general public thinks. So um, when my organization released our paper last week on the 14th, the Guardian had a little article about it. Um, Asked me later what I thought about the article. But reading comments online related to sort of hot public health topics is actually quite interesting. And here's what some of the people had to say. If it doesn't work on cigarettes, I don't think it'll work on food. For me personally, the issue does not lay with healthy eating. It's why are people choosing other options? Is it ease? Then we should be looking at making alternatives that are just as easy or comfort eating. What are the root causes? Because it's simply not a case of cutting back on fatty foods. That is far too simplistic. We need to understand the issue in a wider context. People are getting fat even when they exercise and don't overeat. So there's something far wrong with the foodstuffs being palmed off in supermarkets in the UK today. I don't need a patronizing government to tax my food because I am not obese and there's nothing wrong with what and how I eat. Taxing what I eat will just make it more expensive for me to feed myself adequately using my money. And then we have what the food industry has to say. <clears throat> so in relation to food taxes in the UK, simply a revenue-raising scheme that will hit families hard. Research shows that calorie intake from sugar-sweetened drinks in the UK is 2%, so it will only have, so it will have an effect on people's pockets, but not their waistlines. And as you can see, that's from the Director of Communications for the Food and Drink Federation, and that was just last week. Any new taxes would be highly regressive and hit the poorest hardest, as low-income families spend a higher proportion of income on food, we would run the risk of reigniting cross-border shopping, which would in turn damage the domestic economy and reduce the government's tax take. Um, and this is from the director of Food and Drink Industry Ireland, after, uh, well, um, in anticipation of the government in Ireland announcing their soft drink tax. And finally, in regards to Denmark and the fat tax. I would like to see any research that shows the fat tax works. On the contrary, the market for crisps and snacks is growing. So, to wrap things up, as we all know, healthy food is less accessible and less affordable, and people aren't buying it. Natural experiments can, when given the time, provide insight into how measures perform in reality. We need far better evaluation and monitoring of the taxes that are already in use. Health-related food taxes need to be one in a series of measures to combat obesity and other diet-related diseases. Most must, we must continually stay aware of regressivity and socioeconomic drivers of health inequities. And if, if food taxes are making things worse for poor consumers, then we need to do something about it. And finally, public health, public opinion, and the food industry. It's very complicated. It's going to be a long road to get the public on board, let alone the food industry, and most likely the food industry won't get on board. Um, but it's something to sort of think about and, and remember that public health and those of us who think about obesity 
hardworking, hardworking investing.